Well, the preaching of God's Word is in Philippians and chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We continue our series on the Bible's teaching regarding conversion. And we take up as our text Philippians chapter 3, particularly verses 7 and 8. And as we do, we consider the new treasure that the converted one has. And so here then, for context's sake, verses 4 through verse 9. Paul writes, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It's particularly verses 7 and 8 that we take up. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. As we continue with our a series on conversion, we have before us the evidence of a converted man. One who has forsaken all other refuge. One who has seen clearly the vanity of the things that men unconverted boast of and a transformed heart that now boasts only in the treasure that truly is. So we've seen that conversion is God's work. We've considered other aspects as well as how God regenerates a soul. John 3, the new birth by which then we're able to see and enter into the kingdom of heaven by faith in Christ Jesus. We've considered saving faith. We've thought together about repentance unto life. We've considered counterfeits of conversion. And now we come to see the new treasure a converted man has. And notice as Paul is dealing with things, he is exhorting men, verse 1, to rejoice in the Lord. It's very similar to what we read in Jeremiah 9 and what Paul himself writes elsewhere, confirming the same, even quoting from Jeremiah 9, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knows God and rather is known of God. Well, here we're called to rejoice in the Lord. And he says that in context against verse 2, those that are dogs, evil workers, the concision, the cuttings of the flesh. He's talking about 
the Judaizers, those who were seeking to thrust Jewish law upon the church and say by these observances, it's then that you'll be a truly mature Christian. If you Gentile wish to be a sound and able mature Christian, then you must be circumcised. You must take up these aspects of the Mosaic law. But Paul says, listen, we're not to rejoice in the accomplishments of the flesh and the outward badges of an old covenant. We're rather to rejoice in the Lord. And he sets himself up as an example of this thing. Notice he rehearses his own heritage and his own personal privileges as a Jew. But then he says in the verse before us, what things were gained to me. Oh, how full an expression that is. These things I've just rehearsed, they were a great award to me. They made me think, oh, what an advantage I have. He says, now I've counted them as loss. Instead of advancing me, as it were, in the sight of God, I see that there's no advance. In fact, it brings me low. He says more than that. He says, I've counted it loss for Christ. So these things I once looked upon as, oh, the uh, great income of spiritual heights and advances. He now says, no, it's worthless compared to what I have in Christ. And he goes further in the text. Notice he says, not just what I used to count as gain, I've counted loss, but he goes further, verse 8, he says, I count all things but loss. Is that how we look upon everything? Finances, health, family, friends. These are loss for the excellency or in comparison to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul adds this personal aspect when he says in verse 9, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Some, doubtlessly all of us as believers, have been tested to a degree in following Christ, certain things get taken from us. Some things which are good get taken from us. Perhaps in following Christ, there's a relationship that gets uh, broken. Not necessarily because of sin on our part. Perhaps there is, but more so because we're following Christ and they don't desire that. Perhaps we lose out on certain promotions we could have attained because, well, we're not going to tow the company line of deceit or other things or work on the Lord's Day or whatever else it might be. And so we lose out that outward gain. Perhaps if we would just compromise, it would set us up as a single person for marriage. If we could just overlook those things that Christ has asserted in His Word. There are all manner of things. But Paul says, I've seen everything go from me. And brethren, surely among mere men, Paul was able to say it with sincerity, his intimate friendships utterly broken. 
He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And now, he was looked upon as a blasphemous man. He was indeed a very able man. And yet, he was now counted a fool. His prestige in and among the elite was now looked upon with scoffing. His body, which doubtlessly had been healthy, he's now able to say as elsewhere he does, listen, I have been stoned. I have been at sea for more than a day. I have been left for dead multiple times. I have been lashed 40 times minus one several times. All of this has been done to me. And you want to know the solitary reason it's happened? I can sum it up in one word. Christ. The reason I suffer these things is because of Christ. And he says, I've lost all these things, but do you see there's not a word of complaint? He says, I count them but dung. The word captures that waste that we send away from us. That's what all these things are in comparison to Christ. The point that's before us as Paul's calling in context us to rejoice in the Lord is twofold. He's making one point to say it's true as a Christian we're going to lose things. We're going to have certain relationships suffer because of following Christ. We're going to miss out on certain aspects of prestige and honor among men. We're going to be counted fools. Our bodies may be exposed to pain. All of this is true. That's real. But, compared to what we gain in having Christ, we are not any the less. But rather, we are far more rich for what we have in Christ. This comes to pass because when converted, the converted one is given a new and incomparable treasure in Christ. There's no treasure like Christ. Now here is the especial difficulty for our culture. Our culture is whatever our income is, a rich and wealthy culture. Now, we may be making $25,000 a year, $17,000 a year, $100,000 a year. We may have income stored up. We may have not a dime stored up. But universally, if we have running water, if we have a roof over our head, a climate-controlled environment, if we're able to put fuel in our car, when you take that, compare it to the overwhelming majority of the world, statistically, you are among the elite of the world's population. That's true of every single person here. It doesn't matter if you live in Ladue or if you live in some mobile home park. Wherever you are on that spectrum, compared to the mass majority of the world's population, you stand rich. Now, that's not how we think of it. But when you walk into the grocery store, whether you shop at Deerberg's or Aldi, you'll find 
that you have selections of different foods you can choose, different things you can have. You have the ability with the click of a button to have two-day shipping on almost any item you want. All of that's true for us. And what that's done for us is it's gotten us used to and assuming the life of ease and comfort. You want a challenge on that? Next time you go to a restaurant and you order your food, see what happens to your own expectations if it takes longer than 10 minutes. What happens? What's going on? You know, how out of order are they? What's taking place? You know, you start to get this thought, they're here to serve me, and of course they are. They're in the order of service. This is their business. But the point is, we get exposed in those moments Instead of seeing the luxury each of us has in that, we take it as the presumptive right that we have as those who live when and where we do. So here's the difficulty. As we live indisputably in a culture of wealth, it's hard for us to get around our minds this thought that everything that we presently enjoy is comparatively worthless and not to be esteemed in comparison to Christ. Well, let's help see this as we consider what Paul's getting at by three things. Firstly, considering the treasure of the unconverted. Secondly, the discovery of grace. And thirdly, the treasure of the converted. And what you'll find is the treasure of the unconverted is not in and of itself bad, but it is a wicked treasure to treasure above Christ. Though there are things certainly that are sinful, the unconverted delight in. Well, firstly then, the treasure of the unconverted. Notice Paul says, what things were gained to me. Now children, you have to get your mind around this and think, what is it that you would get And you would start to think, if I have more of that, well, I'm doing well. And adults can think of that as well. What would I get? And I'd say, I'm doing better. That's what Paul means by this phrase, the things that he counted as gain. The things that were building him up. But notice in context, he's speaking of the prizing of religious things. What are those things? Well, the circumcision that he experienced, that sacrament of the Old Covenant, his heritage, the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, and his comparative righteousness as touching the law of Pharisee and zealous and as touching the righteousness which is in the law. What a word he uses. Blameless. This is what he treasured. And all of a sudden, you can start to see that this is the same treasure, whether Jew, Gentile, whether American, Mexican, whether someone from the continent of Africa or Asia, wherever one is found, this is common to all men. How do we know that? Well, go and tell someone that you're trusting in a lie And without Christ truly embraced by faith alone, you're damned. What will happen? Well, most of the time, what happens is this. No, no, no. 
I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not done all these things. And though I used to do that, I've turned over a new leaf. What a great expression. Because though a leaf may be turned over, isn't it the same leaf? The point is, whether it's a leaf in the book of a page, a book, you turn it over, it's still the same thing. Or a leaf and you turn it over, everything is the same. The point that's before us is that unconverted men prize above all else themselves. That's what they prize. Notice what Paul is saying. I was a Jew. I was circumcised. I was Hebrew of Hebrews. I was blameless. All of these things that were mine and about what I did, this is what I prized. Now notice the language of our culture. Self-made man, self-made woman. He's pulled himself up from the bootstraps. He was poor, he's now rich. He's diligent. Look at all the degrees he's accomplished. Look at the life he has. Look at the house he's made. Look at all of what he's done and all of his accomplishments. And what you'll find is, though it's not explicitly religious, it shares in the fundamental essence of what Paul's getting at. It all has this common expression, look what I've done what I am by my works. That may take a religious flair. Look, I go to church, you know, my parents were elders or whatever it might be. I've, you know, I could trace back, I go to the cemetery and I see ancestor, 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 all buried in this church uh, grounds. All these things may be true. And I've gone to Sunday school, I've gone to vacation Bible school, I've read the Bible, I sing the Psalms, all these things. And yet the common thread in all of it is look what I am as what I've done. And subtly what's being built up, whether in the religious garb or the secular garb, is look at me and what I've accomplished. You see, brothers and sisters, the treasure of the unconverted is a single letter. I. That's what people treasure. I treasure myself. I treasure what I've done. I've treasured my wisdom, my works, my religion, my choices, my accomplishments. That's my treasure. If you were to take the treasure box of an unconverted person, whoever it is, and open it up, there's one thing in it, and it's a self-portrait. That's what unconverted people love. They love themselves. Whether financial work, business work, religious work, they love to stare at themselves and treasure those things. Comforts come to them and they say, this is good. Why? Because it comforts me. Finances fill, their bank account. Why is that good? Because it's my wealth. My health is good. Why is it? I've got health. My family is good. Why? I have a good family. I'm in this church. I'm working here. I've been 30 years doing so and so on. All of this comes down to this point. The unconverted's treasure is himself. Notice one can treasure their pedigree. Now I come from this stock. That's what Paul had in his. We might have something similar. You know, I trace it back and how people love, well, you know, I was related to George Washington. And, you know, I can trace it back to this state and that region and this nation and so on. And they get meaning out of that. And there's some identity in that. And there's strengthening of their own esteem of themselves in that. Or they might treasure their own religious actions. 
well, you know, I've been to church all these times. I'm frequent in doing all of these things. They're comparative righteousness. I'm better than they are. I don't do those things. I'm not in those heinous sins. I'm purer than they are. But when it comes down to it, the unconverted prize themselves. That's their treasure. And so when it's more secular, it expresses itself in the form of our culture today. And so how do people spend their time? I mean, what a laughable expression that has gripped so many people. I need me time. It should make us say, are you a grown-up using that expression? You need what? Me time? This is utterly abhorrent to any Christian. Because the Christian's life is an utter denial of me. It is a saying, I deny myself. I'm taking up the cross to follow Christ. But be that as it is, even the church has been infiltrated by this thought. Books are written by even proclaimed Reformed people of all of these focuses of saying how we need to nurture ourselves and care for ourselves. What has happened is the church has been impacted by the culture of ease, self, and self-fixation and focus. That's why there is utterly no pushback by the world to that message. Never will the world push back against the message of anything that caters to self. But you get out of the church, and what do you see? You know, people doing this with their finances, that with their finances. What goes on social media? Look at all the things that I'm doing. Going this vacation, that vacation. Look at these things I'm doing. Look at the possessions I have. Selfie with this dignitary. Selfish with that rock star. All of these things are fueling the grand treasury of men's hearts. Their ego themselves. That's what they treasure. But in religious times, when religion has the upper hand, what is it? Look at all the accomplishments. Look at the travels I've done to this side and that side. Look at my library. Look at the books that I've read. Look at all of these things. Look how I pray. Look at all the things I'm doing. And we become the Pharisee. I thank Thee, O God, that I'm not like other men, for I fast twice a week. I pray. I give tithes of all that I have. And I'm not like this tax collector. So whether secular or religious, what we find is Whatever has the upper hand still holds the same thing. A self-fixation upon the treasure of what I am, what I do. You know, Christians sometimes, they get caught in these so-called culture wars and it's laughable if it were not so abhorrent. And so they watch things like, well, at least the Hallmark Channel has you know, good things. The Hallmark Channel is full of this. All of those things that seem, you know, rather, you know, benign and whatever else are actually fueling this very point that the big thing is you and look what a good person you are and look how you've got everything. And if you do the right thing, the right thing's going to happen. And all of this flatters ourselves. The point is, it's all fueling this grand focus of self fixation of our own image. And Paul, without grace, sees nothing. Notice, secondly, the discovery of grace. What happens? 
Well, when Paul is converted, he comes, as he says, verse 8, or verse, verse 7, to count them as loss for Christ. He reckons them as worthless. He esteems them as nothing, yea, less than nothing. What's the point? He's come to see that all, everything apart from Christ, every heritage part, everything of his own accomplishing, everything of his own doing, all that he had built his identity upon, all that he had esteemed himself by and for, he sees it all as worthless. But more than that, something to be refused and rejected and cast away. Notice what this includes. It includes all self-righteous religious actions. If you've not read The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, read at least the first chapter. And when you do, you'll see how far a man may go in a Protestant and Reformed society of prayer, fasting, diligence, and to be esteemed by most as a Christian, and yet to discover in himself that all was still the service of the grand treasured item, myself. I was always relying upon my prayers. I would set apart days when I would go into the fields and pray and weep and cry and fast. And yet, though there were feelings, he says, I came to discover that all was an attempt to gain heaven by my works. Well, Paul had something similar. And he had come to see that all of his religious actions, those things which were gained to him, which he esteemed and said, look what I have, which makes me better. He says, I see it as loss and to be refused. But he goes more than that. The discovery of grace goes beyond what was more particularly ours. And it comes to see it's true of everything. Everything apart from Christ is worthless. We're sort of coming to the end of the show, the car show season when you know, you're driving around on a Friday night and you pass by a parking lot and all of these classic cars are out and so on. It'd be fun to look back and see all these things and you wonder, you know, what's the most expensive car and all these things and people love to put up, here's what it was found in the junkyard and here's what it was restored and now look at its glory, chrome, everything's restored and this is a numbers car. All of the, car, the numbers on the engine are original and they match up and people start to want, well, which is the most expensive? And all of this time, all of this energy and so on, yet realize this, every single last vehicle, whether classic or brand new, is going to end up consumed, broken down, and filling, as it were, the earth with its waste. Everyone, in the end, will be utterly worthless. No one says that. No one goes to a car show and says, worthless. No one goes to a Ferrari showroom and says, worthless. No one goes to the best mansion and says, worthless. But here's the point. When you see it through the sight of Christ, you come to realize that it's all utterly of no value. And so the ladder that people try to climb in society, in religion, and other such things, as it stands apart from Christ, is seen here as utterly without value. 
Paul says, I count all things dung, excrement, waste. Is it so that you've discovered that? With all the advances of technology, do you look upon technology utterly as worthless except as it is used as a tool in service to the advance of Christ's kingdom and necessary work? Any other look upon it is esteeming it as something it's not because it's worthless. Have you come to look upon your three-bedroom house, your two-bathroom house, your five-bathroom house, and whatever size it is, your one-bedroom apartment, as apart from its service to Christ, worthless? It doesn't matter. It's utterly of, in, of uh, no concern so long as it stands apart from Christ. The point is the discovery of grace changes the system of value into the right system of value. The world system of value looks upon accomplishments of men, possessions of man, and says these are the things that ought to be esteemed. Do you remember not long ago in our series on Luke, there in Jerusalem, the men say, look at what manner of buildings these are. And what does Christ say? Oh, you're right. You know, this one's quite significant. And let me tell you the heritage of this and the history of that. He says, you need to understand this. There's not a stone here that's not going to be left turned over. He both speaks of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the last day. What's he getting his disciples to look at? Look at the value by the end. So think of it this way. Before the breakdown of Soviet Union, you could think about having all of their uh, currency. I know it was a value for a season, wasn't it? And then the breakup of Soviet Union, you could have all of their currency and it's utterly worthless. For a season, it seemed to have value, but today it matters nothing. It's worthless. And that's the way we need to look on the things of the world. The things the world esteems should only be esteemed in context for, as it were, the service they allow us to do to the glory of Christ. Beyond that, there's a day coming when everything will be seen as worthless. You get a new car, what happens? Look at the new car I have. and Oh, it's quite nice. It takes five years and you don't care about the car anymore. You need to live more in light of the five years from now than you ever do at the first day of it. When you get a new promotion, look, I'm really riding the corporate ladder and the finance, five years from now, you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. You need to live, live more in light of the five years. And let's stretch that. You need to live more in light of the last day in order to gain a right perspective on everything that comes into your life. Everything that gladdens your heart that is of this world needs to be measured with the value it will have on the last day. Why is that significant? Because the only thing that will have value on the last day is Christ Jesus. Nothing else. No one on the last day is going to say, well, at least I was a politician with a great 501 uh, or pack, uh, retirement package. No one will say on the last day, at least I was a specialist medical doctor and I had this life and all the vacations I took and all of the free time I had. At least I was an elite special force a soldier and I had all of these things that I did and all of that that was accomplished. None of that's going to avail anything. 
No one's going to say, well, at least I lived in that neighborhood. At least I had that house. At least I went to that church. At least I had these friends. At least I had a healthy life. None of it at all is going to be of any concern. The one thing that will be of any concern is did I have Christ or not? It's the only thing that's going to matter on the last day. But may I ask you for a moment, if someone assessed your life, does your life testify to that? Does your life testify to this truth? The only thing that is of any value is Christ Jesus. Now brethren, this doesn't mean one can't be outwardly wealthy, healthy, rich, whatever, but you will discover that those who are gracious and wealthy hold their wealth with the open hand and ask the Lord, how can I employ this in service to Christ? They are using the gifts that they have in service to Christ. That's their orientation. One may be dirt poor, and yet, as Paul commends the Macedonians, though poor, they gave of their poverty. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Paul says, I've learned whether poor with nothing or rich and having everything, how to live. How is it that he lives? For Christ. By Christ. Why? Because the one thing that matters is Christ. That's the discovery. Christ answers everything that I ultimately need. On the last day, I will have the treasure that amounts to heaven because I have Christ. It won't be look at all my works, look at all that I did, look at all these things. It will be look at Christ who I cling to and He is my hope. This leads us to the treasure of the converted. When he explicitly identifies whatsoever things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Notice verse 9, or verse 8 rather, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. What's he getting at? He's saying in simple ways, Christ excels everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with your health? I've been sick and I have this affliction that continues forever. And what happens? We start to get overtaken by it and concerned by it. And it's not wrong, of course, to pray about it and to seek help and so on. But ask yourself in those moments, is it so that the thought that I have Christ makes me say, though afflicted, I have the treasure that will never be taken from me? What about the loss of loved ones? spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. These are difficult and deep waters. But here is the treasure that sustains us in those times. Though I've lost that significant, substantial reality, I have not, nor can I lose, Christ. Christ excels Everything. Think of that language. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. What it's saying is, that which excels everything else. Now, is that what you esteem Christ to be? In having Christ, I have that which excels every other thing. 
Everything I could accomplish with all of my self-righteousness, all of its waste, and its worm-eaten, and its utterly worthless. But I have Christ, and I have that which answers the demands of the law, which enters into heaven, which gives me everlasting life and fellowship with God. So I have everything in Christ. Well, I don't have much in this world But I have Christ, and by Christ I have the new world to come where glory upon glory will be mine. Christ excels everything. Someone says, well, I have a lot. I have health, I have wealth, I have family, I have friends. And in the Lord's mercies, that may be the lot even of many Christians. But in the midst of that, the converted will say, What is this compared to Christ? It's interesting. We see that very expression in Psalm 73. When the psalmist has come near to stumbling and he's brought to say toward the end of the psalm in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. What is being expressed is the treasure of the converted. I have Christ and everything else is worthless. Now, we need to confirm that this does nothing to destroy our gratitude and our right use of good things. Spouse, child, education, money, health, friends, church, resources. All of those are merciful provisions. And yet we receive them as gifts from Christ. And in context we see they are then to promote Christ's glory. We look upon everything in our dominion as not ours, but that which is given us as stewards to use for Christ in service to the One alone who is worthy. The One alone who is good. What about your life? What if the Lord has chosen for you to suffer. And to suffer in ways that aren't equivalent to martyrdom, but are difficult and painful. And He's promised though that in your suffering He will be with you and He'll gather glory to Himself by sustaining you in your suffering for the length of your life to promote His glory. The converted one says, praise God He's getting glory in this, in me. Is that the message of our generation? Or is the message rather, we'll do whatever you can to get out of that suffering? Now we should say it's not that we shouldn't seek deliverance. But brethren, we must come under this submission. If the Lord is glorified in it, that's what satisfies my soul. I want nothing. Nothing. I want nothing more than that Christ is glorified. Because there's nothing that is above or even equal to Him. Christ alone is that treasure for the converted. But let's get it more to the context of our passage as we close, the treasure of the converted 
is not just in the generality and all comprehensive reality that the whole of the world is as dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. It's particularly true with reference to my standing before God. It's particularly the case that the converted one treasures Christ above anything that he's accomplished himself. This is why to the converted person, it is an absolutely insane question to consider, well, what can I contribute or how do my works contribute to justification? You know, to a converted person, the person says, you've got to be kidding me. Like, what could I ever think to contribute to Christ Jesus? Christ excels anything that I can contribute. I wouldn't add value to my justification by my works. I would only detract from the value of justification because Christ and Christ alone is my only hope. He excels everything I have done, anything I could do. Nothing I do contributes in the least to my salvation and standing before the Lord. For Christ is everything. Christ excels all things. Christ says one thing is needful. The psalmist replies, as it were, in Psalm 27, When thou didst say, Seek ye my face, then unto thee reply, This did my heart, Above all things, thy face, Lord, seek will I. The whole consuming focus of the heart of the converted is Christ. In His righteousness standing before God, it's Christ. In His living of a life of self-denying sacrifice, it's Christ. In sanctification, it's Christ. In the family, it's Christ. At work, it's Christ. In affliction, it's Christ. In riches, it's Christ. In life, it's Christ. In death, it's Christ. And in eternity, it's Christ. Christ is all things for the converted, for the unconverted, it's Christ and other things. For the unconverted, it's Christ and what I do. For the unconverted, it's, yeah, I need Christ, but I'm going to be sure to combine Christ with something that I've done. My identity is really important to me. You know, I'm not like the rest of the world that doesn't care about it. I really am impressed by what I do, which frankly is what the rest of the world wants and does. The Christian says, my only identity is Christ. That's what I am now. The unconverted says, Christ is important, but I'm going to add to Him. Paul presents to us the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And I close by calling each of you to consider, is there anything that excels Christ? Look into the treasure box of the unconverted. The self-image of one's self-portrait. And ask, does that compare to Christ? Look at all the prayers and the readings and the uh, uh, church goings and uh, all of the actions and outward obedience. Does that compare to Christ? Look at all the wealth and the comfort and the vacations and the houses and uh, the trips and the possessions. Does that compare to Christ? And the answer is undeniably, not only does it not compare, it is dung compared to Christ. It's worthless. Now, with that before you, 
consider what Christ, whatever else He hasn't given you, consider well what He holds forth to you. When He holds forth Himself to you, what is He holding forth? What is it that Christ is saying, take this? What is it that Christ is offering to you? What is it Christ presents and says, this is for you? He's holding forth to you the incomparable, the everlasting, the blessed riches that shall never diminish or tarnish because He's holding forth Himself, the only treasure. So see that now in perspective. When Christ holds Himself out to you, He's holding forth the biggest, the best treasure there is. To the world, He gives health and strength and life and smiles and all of these other things. He's pleased to give some of that to His own people in this life. But to His own people, He reserves the best. And what is the best? It's Christ. It's Himself. The Son of God incarnate. The work of salvation. The benefits of salvation all bundled up in Christ. And when you start to see this, you'll start to look upon your earthly losses ultimately as insignificant compared to the treasure you have in Christ. Now, Brethren, in God's providence, we hope to gather to the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day next week. Keep this in your mind. Christ is again presenting to you the treasure of treasures and holding them forth to you and saying, this is for you. I am for you. Whatever else I haven't given you, I have reserved for you the treasure that shall endure for all everlasting time and eternity. And when it is you start to see it that way, and you'll be able to look at Philippians 3.1 and hear Paul say, Rejoice in the Lord. And you'll know why you are to rejoice in the Lord. Because in having the Lord, you have the God-given treasure of life, of salvation, of fellowship, of joy, of justification, of sanctification, of glorification. Indeed, in having Christ, you have the only treasure that is worth the title treasure. So see yourselves, Christians, as those whom God has truly privileged. And if without Christ, consider well that whatever else you may gain, you go without that alone which is a treasure indeed. So stand with me.